Today we are in 1 Peter, uh, we're continuing in our series of, of 1 Peter, and we'll be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, we're going to be uh, going through verses 8 to 12, and uh, this will be our last time in 1 Peter before we start uh, going through uh, our, our Easter season, so, um, and then we'll pick up back in, in 1 Peter sometime in, in April, so... Um, one of the things that I was thinking about in preparing this, this message is just thinking about how throughout our lives, from the earliest uh, groups that we're a part of in our lives up, up till now, if we're in any particular types of groups or organizations, um, there's something that all these groups have in common, whatever groups we've joined. If we happen to be a part of the Boy Scouts when we were younger, or maybe worked in the Boy Scouts, or you were part of the Girl Scouts when you were younger, or maybe you worked in them, or the school that you went to, or the college you went to, the place of employment you were at, or a volunteer organization that you were a part of. All these organizations have in common a certain thing, and that certain kind of commonality is they all want you to conduct yourself in a certain way. They all have certain values that they want you to exhibit to represent their organization well. They want you to be serious about reflecting their values because their values is what helps set them apart from other organizations. It's something that they are marked by. It's something that they are known by. Uh, for example, I don't know how many of you know this, but I used to work for uh, Starbucks Coffee, and I did that several years ago for quite a while. And um, one of the things about Starbucks, one of the values that we were to be about and to model and live out was they wanted their employees to provide what they called legendary service. And sometimes that service was legendary in the sense of being amazing and good. For, for instance, you might go to a particular Starbucks or your, your grandson um, or son or daughter, and, and they might have this amazing experience where they just loved the drink that they came away with and they just loved visiting their favorite barista. And now, sometimes though, not everything was so legendary in the amazing sense. Sometimes when you go to Starbucks, it's legendary bad, right? Um, and now, whenever that happens, you knew as a customer that, that that barista or that team of baristas who gave you the legendary bad service, you knew that they were not reflecting the values that you as a customer had come to know. And nations also have values that guide them. They have values that they desire their citizens to, to live out and to embrace. Here in America, we have the Declaration of Independence, and it says that people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that these are foundational, essential values, if you will, for what it means to be an American. And also in America, we, we say we value people's individual rights, the opportunity to pursue your dreams that we value all races from all places, that we value the rule of law and upholding justice. And that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm not up here to do a stump speech or anything. And, and some of us wonder, is some of these things still true for our nation as we pay attention to, to the news and what is happening? Now, when it comes to being a, a Christian, Christians have certain values that we're supposed to live out and model as well. And over the last several weeks in the book of 1 Peter, we have been learning about how Christians 
are to conduct themselves in relation to government, in relation to their work, and in relation to their marriages. And the kind of conduct that Peter was writing about was how Christians were to live under various kinds of authority. And so in today's passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment, Peter makes a shift. He makes a transition from the topic of Christians submitting to those in positions of authority to talking about values that all Christians are to live out, to model. These are virtues, if you will, that all Christians should embrace. These are values that should mark a Christian's life. And so today, um, today's passage calls us also to live contrary from how the world lives. And that God reminds us here in this passage, he reminds us that there is a blessing for those who obey the Lord. So look with me, if you haven't already turned there, look with me at 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. And where I want us to focus first is just focus on verse 8. And we're going to be taking more of a verse-by-verse approach today. And verse 8, when we look at it, is going to show us five values that Christians are to exhibit, to model, and to live out. And and I'm going to call these five values here in verse 8 as every marks Christians should live by. And think of these five marks like virtues for you to live by. Okay, so read with me. Um, I'm going to read here in in verse 8 about these five marks and then go into it a a little bit. So just follow along with me here in verse 8, and then I'll go into it a little bit. He says this in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, something to remember, he says, finally, all of you, right? So Peter's primary audience that he's writing to here, uh, he makes mention of back at the beginning of the book of 1 Peter. And he's writing to the Christians are, who are in what is known today as modern-day Turkey. They're in that region. But he refers to them at the opening of the book as elect exiles, now, now, Peter wasn't writing to Christians in a physical exile, but in a spiritual exile. So, in other words, even though Christians live in this world, we don't belong to the kingdom of this world because Jesus has rescued us from the kingdom of this world and transferred us to his kingdom. And because of that, we are to reflect Jesus' kingdom values in the world around us. We are to be marked and to be known by his values. And the primary values of our lives are are not to be marked by whatever organization that we're a part of or the nation that we live in. And that's not to say that those values are not important, but it is to say that those values are secondary to the values that Christ wants us to live out. And so what I'm talking about here is our lives must be marked by the lordship of Christ in our lives. And here in verse 8, Peter Peter gives us five marks that all Christians should live by. And the first mark that all Christians should live by is this. He says to be united in your thinking. 
Peter wants us to have unity of mind. And in the, in the Greek, this means to be of the same thinking, to have the same mind. And of course, this mind Peter is talking about is the mind of Christ. And the Apostle Paul wrote about Christians having the mind of Christ. He wrote about that in, in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He said that we have the mind of Christ, that believers have the mind of Christ. In Philippians 1.27, he puts it this way, and it'll be up here on the screens for you. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A few verses later in Philippians, in Philippians 2.2, Paul says this. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You can just hear all this sameness, the unity of, of that thought there, okay? That all believers should be about this. So what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? It means that we follow and put into practice Jesus' teaching. That we seek out his teaching. That we listen to his teaching. That we obey his teaching. That we believe his teaching. And that we put his teachings into practice, Having the mind of Christ also means we do the very same thing with God's word. We seek out its truth. We listen to it. We obey it. And we put it into practice. We put into practice the teaching of all of God's word. And sadly today, many Christians are, are not united in their thinking about things about Jesus or about what God's word has clearly spoken about. Uh, I came across a study this week uh, from the publishing company Lifeway, and they put together, uh, they did some research and put together a study and, and did it with, and partnered with Ligonier Ministries, and they came together and, and published a, a, a study titled The State of American Theology, which is all about theological beliefs of evangelicals here in America. And so... They do this every two years. They started it in 2014. They, they put out uh, some information uh, just at the end of last year, end of 2020. And one troubling st statistic in there was that 30% uh, of evangelicals do not believe Jesus is God. Rather, that he is a great moral teacher, which, of course, is a big problem because God's word and the, uh, the apostles speak of this too. They, and even Jesus himself said that he was God. I and the Father are one, okay? John says that Jesus was God in the flesh and walked among us, okay? So this, this theology study also, you know, I said it's done every two years, so there was one that came out in 2018, and in that one, there were some other troubling statistics about what evangelicals believe here in America, and one of them is this. It said that 52% of evangelicals believe people are basically good. And that's a problem because the Bible doesn't teach that humanity is inherently good all the time. We have the capacity to do good, but we're actually inherently bad, that we're actually evil. We're going to trend to do more evil than we are to do good. 
Another thing is that 51% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, which, is a, which of course is a problem when you look at John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, not through other religions, through him. And then, lastly, on their theology, or American evangelical theology in America, 78% think that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by the Father. And of course, that's a big problem as well, because Jesus is everlasting, okay? He's always existed. He is not created. So those are all heretical uh, beliefs. And then they had some beliefs on cultural issues, too, that were put in there. One I found interesting was related to, to gender, which found that 99%, so virtually all evangelicals believe that God created male and female, okay? But here's the twist on that. Well, it might be encouraging that they acknowledge that, okay? 30% said that gender identity is a matter of choice. So while it might be encouraging to think that nearly 99% believe that God created man and woman, it's very concerning to think that 30% think it's basically okay for them to play God with who they are. And so what all of this information reveals to us is that professing Christians are not always of the same mind. They're not always of the same thinking. But God does want his people to be of the same mind, especially in areas and matters that he has clearly spoken about in his word. And the reason it is important for Christians to be of the same mind, to take on the mind of Christ, is because it impacts our personal discipleship. It impacts our walk with Jesus. And it impacts our testimony to others. So this first mark of being united to one another in our thinking means that we must have the mind of Christ. It's to have an outlook on life like he had, to follow his teaching, to put our trust in it, to practice it. Because Jesus doesn't want us to have a, a divided thought life over issues that he's clearly spoken about. He wants our minds, our whole being, to be united under his lordship. Now, the second mark every Christian should live by is this. It says, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. This word in the Greek means to share the same feeling. It's sharing the same feeling. So not only is there a thinking component to following Christ, but there's this emotional component too. Christians are to, to share one another's joys and sorrows. When a fellow believer has something to celebrate in their life, celebrate with them. Do that. Be happy for them. And if they are sorrowful, be compassionate. Care for them. Come alongside them. See how you can be of help to them. And you, by the way, you don't have to do this exclusively just for your Christian friends. You can do this for those who are not saved as well. Show them the love of, of Christ. Care for them. Celebrate with them what's appropriate to celebrate with them. The third mark every Christian should live by is this. Be loving. Be loving. And this word for loving has the idea of a brotherly kind of love. That Christians are to love one another like they are part of your own immediate family because 
It says in the Bible that when you become a Christ follower, you join the family of God, okay? And so this involves a loving and caring for, a serving of one another within the church, like they are part of your own family. It's an unselfish, other-centered kind of love. And the fourth mark every Christian should live by is this, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. This tender heart is to flow out from the deepest parts of who we are. In other words, if, if being tender-hearted is a deep part of your character, it's going to flow out of you. It, it will show how you relate to God and to others. Now, why does it matter? Why does it matter we are to be tender-hearted in how we relate to God and in how we relate to others? Why is that a big deal to God? Well, because being tender-hearted allows our hearts to be molded and shaped by God in the way that he wants us to go. You see, a soft heart before the Lord means you have an open heart before the Lord. Having a soft heart means that you are open to receiving instruction from the Lord. It shows your posture before him as being willing to be shaped by him, to listen to him, to being ready to obey him. Now, if you have received Christ, then I hope you do have a soft and tender heart because of the love that Christ has shown you. In Ezekiel, it talks about how God is the one who turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And he does this through the power of his Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Should be up here on the side screens, yeah. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what Ezekiel is saying is that without the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit, we all have hearts of stone before God. We all come and have a hard heart before he does a work on our hearts. Before knowing Christ, our hearts were hardened to him, meaning we were against God. But when he calls us to follow him and, that, and we obey that call and put our faith in following him, he transforms our hearts of stone and turns them into a heart of flesh, from a hard heart to a soft, malleable heart, a heart that desires to listen to and to live out the things that God wants for us. So not only do we need to have a tender heart towards God, though, we also need to have a tender heart towards others. Having a tender heart towards others shows them that the love of God has indeed transformed our hearts. Having a tender heart towards others shows them that you are open to receive love from that person, from another person. A hard heart's going to close off relationship, but a tender heart will promote and open up possibilities for greater relationship. Having a tender heart allows us to forgive, to extend mercy to others, to be compassionate, and to model the kind of love that Christ demonstrated for us. And the fifth mark every Christian should live by is this. Be humble. Be humble. 
When you read the Bible, um, have you ever noticed this? Does anything good ever happen to the proud in the Bible when you read through it? No. I mean, the, the Bible says in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, 18 puts it like this. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, pride is dangerous. It can ruin and destroy your life. And Christians shouldn't think that that they are immune to this because it's happened to plenty of Christ followers who think that, you know, they can just get away with some certain things and skate in life. But then they trip up and they fall really big. You've probably heard the saying that, you know, certain businesses are just too big to fail. Like, oh, that could never happen to them. They're just too big, too great. And some people think like that that way too about their own lives. They think, you know, I'm too big to fail. But clearly the Bible says otherwise. We're all capable of that. And we do that actually probably, if we're humble enough to admit it, we do that more than we would care to admit. Now, interesting too, think about Peter's life. Do you think Peter had... um, prideful moments in his life? Do you think he was familiar with pride? I mean, when you read the Gospels, you'll come across some interesting um, reactions that Peter has to life's circumstances. I mean, if you, when you read the Gospel of John, he, do, he doesn't want you, or he doesn't even want Jesus to wash his feet. He claimed to Jesus, hey, I'm going to go to the mat for you. But then he denied him three times, right? Peter learned humility. And he learned it from Jesus. And humility is not just a character trait for Jesus only, but he wants that to be a character trait for us as well. It's to be a mark for us as Christians. And the reason humility is such an important virtue for the Christian is because it keeps you dependent on God. It helps keep you others-centered instead of being self-centered. So these are five marks every Christian should live by and are ways that Christians are to do good in this fallen, broken world. You know, Jesus said that we will have trouble in this fallen, broken world. And sometimes we will face persecutions. Sometimes evil things will be done to us. Lies will be spread about us. Or maybe we'll be slandered or insulted. And when that happens, what do you do? How are you to respond when these evil things are done against you? And Peter says something very interesting here. He says, basically, do what is contrary. Do what is contrary and bless. Okay, let's look at verse 9. He's going to flesh that out for us. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter here, what he's doing, he's actually repeating the ethical teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. When evil comes our way, when insults come our way, Peter issues here a, a, a command of what we're not to do. Okay, And he, by saying, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And and the word for reviling could be translated insult. And it has the idea of cursing someone, of speaking evil about someone, saying things about them that are not 
true, or it's a way of slandering them, in other words. It's trying to take them down. It's a malicious, verbal attack that's done to injure the other person's character or standing. And so naturally, in our fallen, sinful condition, I think when things like that happen to us, the thing we most want to do is we want to retaliate. We want to get revenge, okay? But Peter is commanding all believers to live by a different standard and to live by the law of non-retaliation. That when a person does an act of evil against you or speaks in a way to insult you, you do not return the favor. You don't take revenge, so to speak. To take revenge, to return evil for evil or insult for insult, like that's a normative pattern and way of how the world operates. Okay, that's normal world behavior. This was true of Peter's time and it's true for our time. For example, you think about, you know, gang wars, right? If someone gets killed in a gang, then the person of that gang whose member was killed then wants to go, you know, kill another gang member that, that did the wrong, right? Social media, too, to me, is, is a cesspool of this kind of behavior where people per- personally attack one another and insult one another, seemingly for sport sometimes, okay? And our political world is certainly full of this kind of behavior, as is our media, just casually throwing out all kinds of ways to speak evil about other people, all with the intention of personally destroying them, figuratively speaking. But the Christian is not to live in this way. And and if they are, they are commanded to, to stop and repent and to change because why? They're not living the way Christ wants them to be living in this world. Proverbs 4.24 commands us, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk from you. Far from you. Put devious talk far from you. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul has a warning. He has a consequence, a consequential warning for those who claim to follow Christ, but they persist in reviling others. He actually says that believers should not even fellowship with a person who professes to be a Christian, but continues to act in this manner. 1 Corinthians 5.11, here's what he says. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears, the, who bears the name of brother, which that was a term for Christian in their time, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, or here's our key word, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, so what's the point that Jesus and Peter want us to remember? I think the point is this, that, hey, don't be normal, Christian. Don't be normal because insults are what is normal. Don't be like the way of the world because returning evil for evil and insult for insult, that's the normative pattern for how the world operates. In fact, instead of being like the world, we're to be different and to know. In fact, the whole reason Peter gives this command here is because we need to expect persecution. We are to expect to have evil done to us. We are to expect to have insults thrown our way. We're to expect it. Why are we to expect it? Well, because Jesus said that we should. He was very clear about that. In John 15, in John 15 18, 
he says that we should expect to be mistreated. He said this to his disciples before he went to the cross. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Just a few verses later, he's still talking to the disciples and he says, remember the word that I said to you about a servant is not greater than his master? And he says, well, if they persecute me, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, Jesus is the ultimate example of demonstrating how to respond to evil. What's great about Jesus and challenging is he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. You know, back in chapter two of this book, Peter reminded us of Jesus being our example. First Peter 2, 21 and 23 says this about Christ. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So because Christ is our teacher, he is our example, we are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we are to do what is contrary. We are to bless And that's the second half there of verse 9. He's saying, be contrarian. It's not normal to do that. It's not normal to bless in the face of being mistreated. But that is what we're called to do. We are called to bless. 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are reviled, we bless. Romans 12.14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And so what does this look like? What does it look like to live in a contrarian kind of way? To bless even when we are reviled or or persecuted? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 44 to 48. And the simple answer to this that you can put on your outline is, you are to love your enemy and pray for your enemy. Love your enemy and pray for your enemy. Uh, let's look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 44, 48. It'll be up on the side screens. And Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, Jesus is calling us to be contrary here, to to not be like the world and instead bless And our love is to be like that of the Lord who blesses the righteous and the unrighteous with sunshine and rain by a means of common grace. That God is sovereignly in control. He's sovereignly in control of the universe. And the moment he speaks to bring judgment, he has that authority. And that happens 
But God is not just a God of judgment, but he's also a God of mercy and love, caring for his creation, providing for it, providing for all kinds of people, caring for all kinds of people in a general common grace to all people, to his creation. And so we bless by loving and praying for our enemies. And our love here is not about how we're feeling in any particular moment, like, oh, I've got a loving feeling, so I'm going to do a loving thing. But it's, it's, a reg- it's to be a regular attitude and part of our character. It's, it's something that we're supposed to be choosing to do and to live out. It's for love to be a verb, as Pastor Bill put it a few weeks ago. It's a love that seeks the good of the other person. It's a love that has others' best interest at heart. Because, after all, Jesus is saying, hey, if you love only those who love you, is that really something to be boasting about? I mean, isn't that what's kind of normal cultural norms anyway? That's kind of what is expected. But Jesus wants us to love those who we will probably get nothing back from in return. Amazing love is a love that loves in spite of rejection and hostility. And so be contrarian in love your enemy. And then secondly, pray for your enemy. Jesus commands us to pray for our enemy. As Pastor Bill was sharing up here in the announcements, uh, for over the past month or two, we as a staff have been gathering in the, in the chapel over there on Thursdays to pray. And we've been praying about all kinds of things. And one of the things we've been praying for is our nation. Because right now, our, in our nation, it seems like Christians have enemies all over the place. We have enemies in, in the media. We have enemies in education, enemies in sports, in business, in government. And what we pray about for these people who are in these institutions is we, we pray that God would soften their hearts towards him. We pray that they would learn to to fear God, and we pray that they would receive the gospel. And we also pray that if they don't do that, that that they would still understand and do what is right, that they would still choose to do good and do the right, because that's what blesses most people. But the interesting thing about when we pray for our enemies and we pray for their hearts to change, what's really kind of interesting is that when we're praying for others and our enemies, our hearts change too. And that's something that we can be praying for while we pray for our enemies is, Lord, change our hearts towards them. That's something that I've noticed in my own life. I remember going to to Utah a a couple, or I don't know how many summers ago it was. It was a few summers ago. And we went to, uh, we partnered with another church to do evangelism to Mormons in Utah. And Mormons have embraced a false gospel, which is why we went to tell them the true gospel. But Mormons, so Mormons embracing a false gospel would technically make them an enemy of the true gospel. But as I would prepare for going and pray about the trip and, and even going along on the trip and praying as I would go and then praying out and about as I encountered Mormon people there, I discovered my heart grew in love towards them. As I prayed and engaged with them, my heart grew in love towards them. So by praying for our enemies, God can not only change our enemy's heart, but he, can, he changes our hearts as well in that process. Lastly, third point there on how to love 
and bless is you can bless those who persecute you by forgiving your enemy, by forgiving your enemy. Forgive your enemy. And again, Jesus is our ultimate example, and he modeled this in an amazing way because even while Jesus was on the cross, he prays in Luke 23 to 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Another example uh, from the book of Acts, a man named Stephen, who's the first martyr of the Christian faith, who follows Jesus's example, and he's persecuted and stoned for preaching the gospel, for just wanting to do something good for his fellow citizens. And he gets stoned for preaching in the name of Jesus, okay? And the text says in Acts 760 this, and falling to his knees, he cried out, this is Stephen, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he had fallen asleep. I want you to think about that. That's amazing. Those are his last words. Those are his last words. His last words are praying for God to be merciful to sinners who are taking his life. I mean, can you imagine um, doing that to a mob who has just stoned you to death and you've only, your whole motivation was to do good, to show them love. I went home uh, that night after meditating on that and shared that story with my, my wife, Sarah. And I said something to the effect of, can you just imagine doing what he did? I mean, how does a person do that? And she said, I think only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just thought, yes, <laughs> that's good. That's, that's true, because I don't know how you do that otherwise. Having the Holy Spirit is what helps us to live contrary. To, that's what helps us to bless, to love, to pray, and to forgive, to have that tender heart towards others that is also pleasing towards Christ. Uh, in the last few weeks, I've watched a documentary on the life of Corey Ten Boom. And I've never read her book, and I, I've known who she is. I just haven't paid close attention to, to her life story. Um, but So I decided to watch it. And Corrie ten Boom, as most of you probably know, she was a strong Christian Dutch woman from the World War II era who ended up in a Nazi concentration camp for helping to hide and rescue Jews from going to concentration camps, right? And, but the interesting thing is, is that what got her to those prisons and those concentration camps was that she was sold out by one of her neighbors. She was sold out by a fellow Dutch neighbor who betrayed her and her family and they were captured and sent off to concentration camps. And Corey and her sister had to go through three of those camps where they were treated horribly. And her sister uh, died in one of those camps after being severely beaten by one of the Nazi guards. And then, interestingly, not long after her sister's death, she was let out of uh, prison. The Nazis let her out. And then the war ended and eventually... Uh, you know, she found out after the war ended that this traitor of hers who had sold out her and her family to the Nazis, she found out the man had been, was going to be sentenced to death because he had caused the death of so many Dutch people. And Corey admitted in this film to harboring bitterness towards this man, that she was very upset with what had happened, rightly so. But she didn't want that bitterness to stay there and take root in her life. And so she decided to write him a letter. And here's just a little portion of what she said in that letter. She said to this man, your betrayal has meant the death of my old father. 
who was 84 years old when they brought him into prison. After 10 days, he died. My sister, who died after 10 months of terrible suffering, my brother, he came out alive, but a sick man, and died through that sickness, and his son never came back. I myself have suffered terribly through in three prisons, but I have forgiven you. And that is because Jesus is in my heart. She goes on to say in the documentary that she sent the man a New Testament and underlined the way of salvation. And the man was so moved, he wrote back to her. And he said that you could forgive me is such a great miracle that I have said, Jesus, when you give such a love in the heart of your followers, there is hope for me. And when I watched that documentary and heard that testimony and, and witness for Jesus, I was floored. I was thinking, could I do something like that? And that was just such a demonstration of an uncommon kind of love. It was doing what is contrary. It's doing what is contrary to bless because we are called to bless. And God promises to reward the good that we do. So we, so we bless to be blessed because our obedience to the Lord is blessed. He promises that. That's what first. That's what Peter's going to remind us here as we close out. Verses 10 to 12. That our obedience to the Lord is blessed. So follow along with me here in verses 10 to 12. Peter writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This here is a quote Peter has from Psalm 34, 12 to 16, which was written by King David. And if you were to look up that psalm and read the context of where these verses are being quoted from, it's all in relation to how the righteous are to fear the Lord. They're to have a proper fear of the Lord. Okay, the righteous who fear the Lord are to obey him, that we're to be about doing what is right and good. Now, Peter has established that already here. He has given us five marks that every Christian should live by. He's, he's told us that Christ followers should do what is contrary and bless. And now he's reminding us by way of Psalm 34 that if we want to continue to enjoy and live a good life, there's just certain things that we must do. And broadly speaking, there are two things if we want to enjoy and have a good life. There's two things that we must do. We must avoid evil and pursue the good. Avoid evil and pursue the good. Again, we're not to take on the character of the world. We're called to live differently. We're called to seek and pursue peace. And that doesn't mean that peace always comes about, but that we should do our part in seeking peace. We should be pursuing it. It should be of primary importance to us. And why are we to avoid evil and to seek the good? Well, because the Lord is watching us. We must never forget that the infinite personal God is watching us. He is personally attentive to us. He sees us. When it says here that his eyes are on us, it means that his favor is on us and that his ears are open to our prayers. 
So if you want God to listen to your prayers, pursue righteousness. Pursue him. Pursue his will. And by the way, if you read on in, in Psalm 34, it, it tells you um, in verse 19 of that, of that um, psalm, it says that the righteous suffer many afflictions. So it's not as though if Christians are always going to do good, that they're always going to be blessed in this life by good things. I mean, the Bible doesn't promise that for us this side of heaven. We, we are blessed because the Savior, the Deliverer, the Redeemer of our lives is on our side. And he promises everlasting life to those who follow him. And that should give us great comfort in reading the concluding part of verse 12 here, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We need to remember that God is a just God. Not only does he watch the righteous, but he watches those who do evil, and his face is against them. In other words, God's judgment comes upon those who do not repent and continue to do evil in his sight. Christians should seek to do good and to avoid evil, but if evil is done to you, know that God is with you. He's watching over you, and he promises to reward your obedience to him. So be encouraged that even though we may feel alone in our struggles in this life, or we face persecution, God is fully aware and attentive to us. He is the just God who watches over everything people do, and he will reward them accordingly. He promises to preserve and to save the righteous. And sometimes on this side of eternity, the Lord rescues us from trials and persecutions, and sometimes he allows us to face them. But he is always with us in either case, as he is the rescuer of our souls, providing eternal life for those who believe in him. Amen? Lord, thank you for this time today in your word and time of worshiping you. May we be doers of this word. May we, may we bless others. May we not take revenge when insults and evil are done against us. May we follow your example, Lord, and thank you for your example, and thank you for the hope that we have in you. Amen.